know just how glorious God's word is. That's probably written maybe two and a half thousand years ago and uh, just amazing how it's just how timeless it is and how it speaks into our culture today and exactly what we're at. So um, I have been enjoying going through studying Jeremiah and, and uh, looking to, to uh, bring some message out of that. So uh, I look forward to it again today as we, as we go to the next uh, part. Um, a couple of years ago, we were fortunate enough to be on a cruise and uh, on the last day, it was really, really rough and we, we went and heard a talk on the Titanic wasn't the ship was sort of going up and down. We heard about this ship sinking. So anyway, went there. It was a really, really interesting talk. This guy was a real historian buff, and uh, he had gone to some museum over in Newfoundland, which was where the Titanic was fairly close when it came down, or that was the closest point anyway. And um, he gave some uh, really great information here about this. And really, if you understand a bit about it, they they just confidently thought this ship was unsinkable. The Titanic, they just said, now this will actually, this is unsinkable. We have put so much design into this and put so much um, uh, sort of thinking on how this, we can keep this thing afloat that there's no way known that this thing is going to um, go down. Anyway, that's what they thought. They were confident of that. And on the night of her going down, um, the White Star Line managing director, so the White Star Line was the shipping company that owned the Titanic, he went to the captain and ordered the captain to travel at full steam ahead. So don't hold back, you go full steam ahead. And what they did back in those days, because they didn't have radars and stuff, whenever it got to night time, they actually would slow ships down because of the icebergs and things that were around there, and they would just go a lot slower so they could see an iceberg and then steer around it. So this uh, White Star Managing Director said, no, no, you just go full steam ahead. And the reason he did that, because he wanted to set like the fastest crossing for the Atlantic Ocean at the time with his brand new Titanic ocean liner to do that. So they did that despite all the hazards of icebergs at that particular time of the year. Uh, These guys uh, were full of pride, full of confidence. Uh, They were going to to display their power and might as a shipping company in all this confidence in what they could do in crossing the Atlantic. Uh, As we all know, disaster struck on midnight, April the 14th at 1912, in 1912. Uh, all of man's wisdom, power and riches in the Titanic sunk to the bottom of the ocean along with 1,500 other people as they uh, ran alongside an iceberg and uh, pierced about four or five of their flotation tanks and they filled with water and within two hours the ship went down. Uh, Prior to that, they were filled with power and wisdom and might that they've developed the most unsinkable ship ever. But in a matter of two hours, uh, this ship went down. We're going to think about confidence today and uh, false confidence and false deception as we think about um, Jeremiah. So if you've got your Bibles, go to Jeremiah chapter 9 and uh, I'm going to read from verses 23 through to 24. And it says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. 
Father, we uh, thank you and praise you that we can come again this morning and uh, we can open up your living eternal word. Father, thank you that this word is breathing with life and that, Lord, your Holy Spirit breathes life through that word. So today we pray as we come and think about Jeremiah from chapter 7 through to 10 and see what's happening here in the life of Israel who was so full of false confidence and deceptive words, Lord. Uh, You're about to expose that and then you're about to point us to where we really and truly should boast and that is in the Lord. So we ask now, Holy Spirit, please come and do a miracle in our hearts by opening up this word to reveal uh, the good news of Jesus Christ through it. Uh, Lord, we ask and we pray that now in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So, so, so far we've met with Israel through Jeremiah and we've seen a lot of stuff which hasn't been all that positive about them as we look at them through this book. Uh, they've made a covenant with God back in the wilderness centuries earlier through Moses after God had saved them from Egypt and that would be that they would um, be God's people, worship him, obey him and follow him without uh, fail. Uh, We got a sneak preview into Israel last week where they had forsaken God and gone about building their own life on all this world could offer. They looked around at all their nations and their neighbours around about them and they liked what they were doing so they thought they would build their lives on that. So they they built themselves in this warped and corrupted sort of way by the nations that were around about them. Uh, They saw the nations as it were prospering somewhat in wealth and in power So they took on these nations' false gods and false ways and false ideas because they wanted a share of that wealth and power as well. As we saw last week, God said, Be appalled, shocked, dumbstruck, O heavens, by the actions of this people. Can you believe what they've done? Can you believe the choice they've made? As we saw last week, they've forsaken the fountain of living waters and dug out their own dirty, muddy cisterns. Well, today we go a little bit further, thinking about the lives here, what's happening in Israel, and we see their corruption unmasked. Uh, we see their big talking, their false confidence, and we also see their deceptive, word, deceptive words that have permeated right throughout their lives as well. Uh, we'll also see where God calls them to true boasting or confidence, and in this we'll then see the wisdom of God shine through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's jump on board and let's uh, have a look at that together as we uh, go there today. Where we start off with, um, with Israel is a very religious people. They were a very religious people. They had the law of Moses. They had the covenants. They had the pedigree as the chosen nation of Israel. Their confidence in this was sky high. They thought they were invisible. In many respects, they probably thought they were like a cocky teenager who thinks he can do anything and never get caught and never get distracted by it that's how Israel were but they built all this on false confidence and deceptive words they built all of this on false confidence and deceptive words we see it there first in verse 4 of chapter 7 in Jeremiah and he says this do not trust in these deceptive words this is the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord now you may be asking what's wrong with saying that It's important to understand the context that this is being said in as they say the temple of the Lord. Their lives at this particular time bear no reflection of obedience towards God. They're living for themselves. They're living according to their own standards and are following all the other nations around about them in their godless ways. And their response in that is, it's okay, Israel saying, it's okay, we've got God on our side. See, 
He's the temple with us. God's with us. He's the temple. We're in the temple. We've got the temple. We've got the temple. Saying that, but then the rest of the week, they're living like there's absolutely no connection or relationship to God whatsoever. Saying one thing perhaps on the day when they're in the temple, but the rest of the week is actually bearing no reflection to that. Uh, We see that in verses 8 to 10. He says this, God's speaking to them. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. What do you call that? That's a fantasy. That's an absolute fantasy. They go and do all that through the week and then they, as it were, stand in the temple of the Lord and say, here we are, Lord. We're in the temple. It's a fantasy. How can you live like that all week and then turn up in the temple and say, it's all good, God. I'm here. In today's culture... We may call that person a Sunday-only Christian. And when I use Christian there with the quotation marks, probably not a Christian at all if it's like that. Because it may look like this for that particular person. All all week, this person is going here and there. This is the Sunday-only supposedly Christian. Barely giving God a thought. On Monday morning at work, here they are talking trash and gossiping just like everybody else. Tuesday night, they get home from work and what do they do? They flick on Netflix, watch a bit of soft pornography and immoral relationships featured in some of the shows they're watching. Wednesday morning, they turn up for work 30 minutes late, but that's still okay because they'll clock on to say that they were there on the right time. Thursday lunchtime, they're laughing and poking fun with all the rest of the gang in the lunchroom at another employee who can't really afford a car like they've got. He can only afford a cheap car. They're belittling that person. The Sunday-only person's like this as well on Friday. There's a chance to make a witness about what you're doing on the weekend, what you've got planned for. But the Sunday-only Christian pulls back out of that for fear of reputation, what the others might think about me. And then when Sunday rolls around, they turn up at church and they might even raise their hands while they're there. And then you feel like you've ticked the box for the week. You've turned up the church. It's all good. I'm in the church. I'm in the church. I'm in the church. And somehow through all of that, we might put confidence in the fact that I've just come to church, ticked the box, but the rest of the week, there's no reflection to any living connection or relationship to who God is in my life. It's a false confidence. It's a false confidence. And for Israel... They weren't just doing this a little bit. They were all in. They were absolutely all in. The whole family was down the path of thinking like this, that they could worship what they like through the week and then just turn up at the temple at the right time on Saturday and say, in the temple, in the temple. Look here in verse 17 where we see this all in of the family. God says, Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather the wood. So the parents send the children, go out and gather the wood, kids. The fathers kindle the fire. Bring the wood back so we can kindle a fire. 
And then the women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out their drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. The whole family's involved. They're sending the kids out to grab the wood to make a fire so we can make offerings to these false gods. And just in case you're confused there about the queen of heaven, this isn't God's wife. God is not married. The queen of heaven is actually the god called Ishtar, a false god. They're all in. Uh, we'll see it again in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 4. You shall say to them, the Lord says, When men fall, do they not rise again? If one turns away, does he not return? Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit, deception, and they refuse to return. They're living in deception, and they're actually holding fast to a deceived lifestyle. It goes further. Even the teachers of the law, which is God's word, they're even dealing in falsehood as well. Jeremiah chapter 8, eight verses 8 and 12 says this. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? God's question. But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed this abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Even the keepers of the law who should have been upholding God's word, the truth, were dealing in it falsely. A while back, I was at a funeral and I came away from that funeral deeply saddened. Certainly extremely sad for the grieving family because it was a traumatic time for them. But it was also sadder for the falseness that was proclaimed about Jesus at this funeral. This funeral gave no real true hope. The priest could only speak of church tradition in some way how that would save the person. At baptism, this person was infused with Christ. At baptism, this person was clothed in Christ. And at baptism now, this person became a follower of Jesus. And this now, this same person is now in God's loving care. There was no mention whatsoever of the centrality of the very absolute central part of what the gospel is about in Jesus Christ, in the cross and in the resurrection. I came away from that funeral thinking, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The priest at that funeral was communicating peace in a false way. There was no peace in what he was saying. There was no good news in what he was saying. I'm sure everybody who was there just thought, well, if I just follow some of the church practices and some of the church traditions and go through this baptism process, it's all good. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. False words, false confidence. The Israelites took it further. They took it right throughout their entire community. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, 4 and 6, Let everyone beware of his neighbour and put no trust in 
any brother, for every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbour goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbour, and no one speaks the truth. They've taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. And in verse 8, following on from that as well, it says this, Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbour, but in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. The whole thing is a deception. The whole thing is about lying and it was rampant within the community. Every brother can't put any trust in another brother. So every brother's a deceiver. They all get ahead by lies and they all get ahead by schemes and they all get ahead by double dealing. These very same people though turn up at the temple and saying in their deceptive and deceived hearts, It's all good. I'm in the temple. I'm in the temple. God is with us. God is with us. Nothing can go wrong. Nothing can go wrong. That's what they're saying when they turn up in the temple after they've been doing that all week long. Deceptive lies, false confidence. For those people, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's all a sham and a show. It's all a fantasy and a fairy tale. They've believed a lie. They're being fed a lie and they're living a lie. That's the, the picture of the people in Israel. They're living in a delusion. And what's worse still is everybody, in some sense, is comforted because each other is following themselves in the same path. Deception, 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 deception. So what's God going to do here in response to the situation? How does he deal with the people like this, turning up to the temple on uh, temple day and saying, I'm in the temple, I'm in the temple, but the rest of the week they live like no connection whatsoever. Well, we see it here in Jeremiah chapter 7, God's response to them in verse 13 to 16. He says this, And now, because you've done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name, God's talking about the temple there, and in which you trust... And to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. As for you, God's now talking to Jeremiah, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry of prayer for them. And do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. God's about to come in and allow destroyers in Babylon come in and, as it were, just level the temple and level everything around about them. God even tells Jeremiah there, don't even bother to pray for them. You might be saying, that sounds really strange. But really what that's giving us is an indication of this. They are so far gone that not even prayer from, their, from Jeremiah will bring them back. The only thing that will bring these people back will be God's wake-up call of judgment. God says, Jeremiah, don't bother to pray for them. They are too far gone. They are too corrupted by this deception. These false words, this false boasting or this false confidence will, has left them broken and cut off from God, building their lives on nothing more than hot air and stale hot air at that. It's not a good scene for Israel at this time. 
But that's not the last word that God gives to them repeatedly through Jeremiah. We see there is justice and there is grace. There's justice and there's grace. In the midst of God, uh, in the midst of judgment, God will still graciously give them a path out of this destructive lifestyle and brokenness that they've got themselves into. God delights in showing mercy. Delights in showing mercy. And God now will point them where true confidence or their boasting must be in life. And we see it there in verses 23 and 24. Verse 23 of chapter 9 says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that is God, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I I delight, declares the Lord. So they were boasting in the temple. They were boasting also in their wisdom and their might and their riches. But all this was misplaced and left them deceived. And if you look closely in verse 23 there, you see they're boasting in my wisdom, my might and my riches. All that boasting is centred upon me, not upon God, in what I have built, in the riches I've accumulated, in, in my wisdom. It's all about me. And in the culture we live in today, often looks up to the people that are like that and puts them on a pedestal because of their wisdom and their power and their might. It's like the rich of this world seem to have a very powerful voice that people listen to. They look at them and see who, what sort of person they are and they think, whoa, this is a powerful person. And they build their confidence then in their riches or their power or their might. I can't help but think of the powerful in might as in strong people, maybe even physically, who build their confidence in that power. And one person who comes to mind, he goes back a few years ago, is uh, Muhammad Ali. Some of you would remember him as a very famous boxer from uh, back in the 1970s, where he rose to fame, and he made comments like this, I am the greatest. I float like a butterfly and I sting like a bee. He would swagger up to that microphone, and that's exactly how he would talk. He'd be bouncing around full of bluff and full of bluster, and he would just let it go. I am the greatest. Get onto YouTube and you'll see it. 20, 25 years later, what was, his, what was his swagger like then? Go to YouTube, have a look in 1996 when he was asked to light the flame at the Atlanta Olympic Games. He was a very sad and sorry sight. The ravages of disease had made his body a quivering mess. He was suffering, unfortunately, from Parkinson's disease. He wasn't the greatest. He wasn't floating like a butterfly and he couldn't sting like a bee. 25 years earlier, that's who he thought he was. That's where his confidence was. All that boasting in self amounted to nothing. The boasting in that foundation is built on hot air and it's built on circumstances that could change in an instant. In an instant. This boasting in wisdom and might and riches looks flashy and it looks cool and it looks trendy. But at the end of the day, it's false boasting. It's false self-praise. It leads nowhere. But you see, this is where God tips all that 
upside down and tips it on its head. God tells them where their boasting should be in verse 24. He says this, But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord, not in our power or our wisdom or our might, Boast in this, God says, that you know and you understand me. That's where your boast is. God wonderfully and gloriously has enabled us to know him. This is where we truly praise and glorify in our lives. This is true boasting. This is true praise. This is true confidence that I understand him. Now, we don't fully understand God. He's incomprehensible but we understand something of him. God, the very true source of wisdom, might and riches, I know him and I understand him. That is where we boast. Not in our own power, our own riches or own might, because that can be just swept away in an instant. And here's what we understand about God. God tells us this. God practices or carries out steadfast love, undeserved love, Loyal love to his people. God practices justice. That's a good thing. It's a really good thing. God is the judge of all the earth and he will make sure that everybody gets justice. Either here on this time on earth or before his great white throne, people will get justice if they've escaped it here on earth. God practices righteousness. All that God carries out is right. He does nothing wrong. And God delights in doing these things. He doesn't begrudgingly show steadfast love. He doesn't begrudgingly uh, practice justice or righteousness. He delights in being this way because that is who he is. And that's exactly how God calls us to live as well. He says it in Micah 6 verse 8, a very familiar passage. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? And to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's our boasting. Knowing and understanding God and living out as he's called us to live. And that's exactly where the gospel takes us. We are bent on often building for ourselves our own wisdom, our own power and our own riches. And putting our trust or confidence in that. We may even be sitting in church today, but our confidence is still in our wisdom or our riches, or our might. The gospel of Jesus Christ tips all of that upside down and shows us where that should be. Jesus comes in meekness and in no position of worldly power. Jesus is born in absolute poverty and knows nothing about earthly riches. And Jesus' way of life, according to the world, was not wise at all. He was not climbing the corporate ladder of success. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But that wasn't Jesus' aspirations of thinking that was the way life had to be in this world. In fact, there was nothing cool about Jesus at all in the light of this world. Jesus was was not a trendsetter. He didn't live for the spotlight. Paul says this really fantastic thing about Christ in Corinthians. Follow up with with me here in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 8-31. He says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So it's foolishness to those who aren't believing the cross. It's a word of folly to them. Verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That is glorious. You don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar or an Oxford Scholar to understand God. You don't have to graduate from Melbourne University to know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to reveal that to you and to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God in their own power or their own riches or their own strength. That's not that. Verse 30, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's our wisdom, that's our power, and that's our might. It's what Jesus Christ has done for us. You see, Judah and Israel were falling victim to the so-called wisdom, power and riches of the nations around about them. They were succumbing to that. They were deluded by that. They were deceived by that. They had built this false confidence in all that the nations around about them were doing and they still thought they could turn up to the temple and say it's all good. It was all false. And we can so easily fall for those same lies today. Jesus Christ is our power, he is our wisdom, and he is our riches. And what we may believe may look foolish or silly in the eyes of this world. It may, and it probably does. It won't be cool or fashionable to follow Jesus. That doesn't take away from us, though, what our true boast is. Christ's power, Christ's righteousness, his wisdom, and his riches. When Christ is our only boast, it frees us to do anything. It's freeing, it's liberating when that's what our boast is, or that's what our confidence is. Here's two things that it frees us to do. First of all, when Christ is our only boast and our true boast, it frees us to be ourselves. It frees us to be willing to own up to our faults and flaws and failures. 
Because we're not looking for something to sort of hide or cover up in our lives. Because Christ is our boast. So we can be open and honest about who we are. That Jesus is the one who restores me and makes me whole. Also, it frees us, when Christ is our only boast, to risk our name. Because I have no reputation to protect. I can go out there and sacrifice my own name. It doesn't matter by looking foolish in the eyes of this world because I want to go and associate with those who are perhaps weak and lowly and uh, underprivileged. I've got no reputation to cover up here. Christ is my power, he's my riches and he's my might. He's my only and true boast. Let's pray. Father, we uh, come before you today to thank you again for your word that speaks to us uh, out of Jeremiah. God, we thank you today uh, that you reveal to us true boasting, true confidence, true praise, a boasting that is right. And it truly is in Jesus Christ. It truly is in knowing you and understanding you and knowing that, God, this only comes about through what Jesus has achieved for us, that at the cross... He tore that veil in two so that we could know you. We could enter into your presence and we could understand you. That your spirit comes and works that deep into our hearts and our lives today. And when you become our only boast, our true boast, God, that gives us this freeing ability within to be real, to not put on a mask, to not put on a facade. God, we come to you and we can just openly reveal our flaws and faults and failures. And know, God, that you delight, you delight, Lord, in showing steadfast love to us and picking us up and restoring us. Well, let that boast today become such a liberating thing in our lives that it would inspire true devotion, true sacrifice, and true love for you today, we pray. Lord, I ask and I pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen.